I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. I'm joined today by Dr. Mike Martin, a familiar voice to many of the listeners, and he's going to talk to us about Ukraine's stunning advance in the east of that country. Mike, welcome. Hello, Arthur. Uh, Mike, uh, let's get straight into it. Uh, really dramatic things are happening on Ukraine's eastern front. They've, I think the latest is, uh, is it 7,000 square Nine. I saw nine. I mean, it's hard, you know. Yeah. It's a lot, isn't it? That, that's a lot of land. Um, what What's your sort of an initial uh, take on what's going on there? Basically, the Ukrainians are, are really good at misdirecting the Russians. So they sent them down south to, con- you know, they were having this big offensive in Kherson. The Russians deployed loads of troops down there because Kherson is really important. It's it's on the route to Crimea. Crimea is the strategic center of gravity for the for the Russians. And 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 to reinforce Kherson, the Russians have to thin out troops from everywhere else, including this this front line. Uh, to the east of Kharkiv and the Ukrainians spotted an opportunity and just punched through with armor and then just followed it up with really fast mechanized forces that in a lot of cases bypassed the Russian combat troops and just went straight for their logistics and their command and control and all that jazz um and that just caused the Russians to collapse uh they surrendered they, they, the, the Ukrainians took Kupyansk which is a major rail junction uh, and then the Russians surrendered his Zoom without because because that was supplied from Kupyansk, so on and so forth. And they just continually encircled these pockets of Russians who've just given up and, and run away or put on civilian clothes. So one of the uh, units to be taken over is the Russian First Guards Tank oh, yeah, Army, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is supposed to be like a, an elite force. That's a serious sort of humiliation for the Russians. Well, I mean, look, so the word elite is bandied about so much when it comes to military stuff. Um, it's a series, I guess, the, what what could I liken it to? It's a bit like the Desert Rats, you know, the 7th Armoured Brigade in the British sort of order of battle. It's a unit that's done some stuff and has got a bit of a history. Is it elite? I mean, you know, people get posted and out of these units all the time. It was the one I, I read somewhere that was on the NATO order of battle for the defence of Moscow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it is no more. It, it has been removed as a as a functioning organisation from the battlefield, which is quite something to, you know, any whether it's elite or not, to remove any formation from a battlefield is extraordinary. Yeah. The Russians don't seem to be trying to resupply and sort of defend these areas they've they've as you say they've basically given up mm. what what does that tell us about um their their own sort of prosecution of this war yeah so their i mean their command structure is is pretty top down and sclerotic and so it's hard to get decisions made 
And if you've got fast mechanized forces kind of cutting off your supply lines, then you need to make quick decisions and they haven't, which has meant that the whole thing just collapsed. What they tried to do was about 60 or 70 miles east of Kharkiv, there's a river called the River Oskil. So they tried to reform a defensive line on that river. So just to the south of this area that we're talking about is, is the two places, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, which you know your your listeners will probably remember from the Battle of the Donbass over the over the over the summer. Uh, and there are sort of Ukrainian attacks going on there as well. So the question is whether these but previously the Donbass and the and the northeastern bit were seen as two separate sectors of the war, but because they were largely supplied by the same logistics network that now the Ukrainians have collapsed, it seems probably like these two bits of the war are going to coalesce into what, you know, the Russians need to stabilize one front there basically. Yeah. And that's what they're trying desperately to do at the moment. Yeah. And, and looking at this, as you mentioned, Serodonetsk, this is chance. These were areas that the Russians were able to take earlier in the year mm. and their methodology is very different. Of course, it's a uh, sort of pounding these populated areas with artillery mm. When we look at this different way of doing war, the Ukrainians mm. making this rapid advance mm. or the Russian methodology of sort of rubbalizing it, uh, It's maneuver versus attrition, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that because the Russians don't have the the kind of relevant skills and command structure to do maneuver? Or or is or is there some other reason that the Russians seem to have gone very slowly and then had this rapid setback? Uh, it's a bunch of things. Uh, so, yeah, command structure, they're very hierarchical. Armies tend to mirror their cultures, right? So in a, in a country where the power distance is great, like Russia, then you tend to end or North Korea or whatever, you tend to end up with sort of very hierarchical armies where the person at the top has to sign off what the person at the bottom is having for breakfast. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is Russia's army is conscript army. Right. And if you come into and warfare is quite complicated in 2022. Mm. So if you come into that army, you're only going to be in for a year and you're not paid anything and you don't really want to be in the army anyway. You know, you're not going to be a highly skilled nor motivated recruit. Yeah. So that means really that actually attritional warfare where you just sling loads of artillery shells down range and then try and, you know, think of it the First World War and then try and do kind of infantry waves. That's what you could. That's all you're left with, because that's sort of low skill warfare. Mm. Contrast that with most Western armies and the Ukrainians who operate. Um, they try and do maneuver warfare, which is about what we so kind of what we described, you know, unsettling your enemy, unbalancing them, psychologically attacking them by cutting off their command and control, their logistics, all that kind of stuff to basically shatter their morale, cohesion, will to fight. Um, that requires a kind of decentralized command structure where the British version of it is called mission command, where what you do is you give the task to someone. I want you to defeat this enemy formation, but you don't tell them how to do it. It's up yeah. to them how they want to do it. And if you think about that, armies are segmented. If that works all the way down from a strategic level down to the section commander, that means that people feel empowered. They've got initiative um, and they can think and make decisions. They feel able to make decisions because they know overall what they're trying to achieve, but it's up to them how they achieve their little bit of that. That requires a much more highly educated and trained army and a, a kind of different philosophy or a different culture within the military. So it's very hard to move from one style of army to the other, but an attritional army is always going to get disjointed and routed by a manoeuvre army. 
um, of comparable sizes and, and really in Ukraine the armies are of comparable sizes you know the maneuver army just thinks much faster it gets inside the decision-making loop of the attritional army looking at what Ukraine has achieved so far it's an area of territory bigger than Wales which is one of those sort of units of measurements that people like to use um <laughs> Uh, How many football then, pitches is it? Yeah, well, yeah, that's it. I haven't, I haven't figured that one out yet. I'll come back to you on that. Uh, it's one Wales, but it's lots of rugby pitches. Yeah, but I suppose the big question might be, is it sustainable? Because, of course, those of us outside observers willing them onwards, uh, you you see that south of where they've got to is the, is the sort of core area of the Donbass, which, of course, the Russians have occupied in one way or another since 2014. Um do you think that they've got the momentum to carry on in that direction? Or is, is there going to be a sort of inevitable kind of pause and regroup? Uh, so there's always a pause and a regroup. Um, you need to get let your logistics catch up and you need to cycle your troops, right? Because it's exhausting, that kind of warfare, because you're on yeah. the go constantly. So you need to kind of rotate companies in and out. So I'm assuming that the Ukrainians have built their army in such a fashion that they're able to do that. I think the bigger question is, do they have a strategic reserve? Um, because, you know, if the Russians stabilise their front line, then that even if the Ukrainians are rotating companies in and out and they've got logistics, that's going to kind of slow down and, you know, settle into some front lines before, you know. But if the Ukrainians have a strategic reserve, then that means they'll just start off in another direction. Yeah. Um, and actually, you you spoke about, you know, are they going to go into Donbass? I mean, if I were U, the Ukraine army, I wouldn't go anywhere near Donbass. The place, you know, ultimately, the bit that Russia really cares about is Crimea. Mm. And if warfare is psychological and it's about striking fear into the hearts of your enemy, you want them to feel unsafe in Crimea. Um, and so that, to me, well, they could carry on on the Kherson front, um, or that's quite usefully tying up loads of Russian troops. They could, if they've got a, if they've got a strategic reserve, I would just punch down from the kind of from Dnipro or Zaporizhia right down to the Black Sea coast your your listeners will recall that the Russians have got people in the east in the Donbass they've got Crimea in the south and they've got this strip of land through Mariupol and Melitopol which kind of joins the two yeah I would just sever that to the Black Sea coast and then those two bits of the Russian occupation can't communicate with each other in terms of they can't pass supplies up and down it yes. makes the whole thing much easier and then you're also in a position where you can threaten Crimea much better and the Donbass would be the last bit that I that I deal with if I were the Ukrainian style. Ultimately, you want to force the Russians to withdraw by causing the collapse of their army. You don't want to fight them to man. That's what that's the way the Russians are fighting. Yeah. The, the Ukrainians want the Russians to just think, give up and go home, or there's some kind of coup in Moscow and the they the new regime pulls the army out or something. That's that's the ultimate psychological effect you want to have. Yeah. Well, it's worth um, thinking a bit about that. Uh, there's already been unsurprisingly rumors of of a coup in moscow or or a sort of you know a, a, the bubbling of of something that might lead yeah. in that direction yeah um and neither of us sitting here in in the uk are likely to have any sort of inside knowledge on that but um what's your perspective on the kind of pressure that this puts on the leadership in russia this this evident failure because it one thing we are seeing is that on the sort of tv propaganda channels in russia People yeah. are talking about it. They, they they haven't managed to hide this failure. Yeah. I mean, Putin personally is totally tied to this war. He, in the same way that he benefited from the takeover of Crimea 
in 24 hugely, right? Remember in 2011 when he was trying to get re-elected and there were all those protests against him and, you know, he was sort of raging, you know, he was his power was looking a bit shaky then. And then Crimea happened and suddenly he became this hero who was, you know, rejuvenating, recreating the glory of Russia or the Soviet Union or whatever. Yeah. So he's tied to this war. So if the war fails, that's, you know, going to be very hard for him to see that through. I think what's interesting, I think some of those pundits you mentioned, there's a kind of right-wing ultra-nationalist clique yeah. who Putin has allied himself with in the prosecution of this war. A lot of those narratives around, I mean, it's ironic, actually, you know, the Nazism of the Ukrainian state. Yeah. A lot of these guys basically are Nazis, the ultra-nationalists yeah. in Russia. It's a kind of a, like a mirroring effect. Yeah. Um and I think what's interesting is he'll see a threat from the right of him, which is hard to imagine that there's something to the right of Putin. And so yeah. it will be those guys. So does does Putin move to the right in order to neutralise them and become you know even more ultra rabidly nationalistic and all that kind of jazz? Or do they are those the people who take over from Putin? Because I think there's definitely a few European leaders who are thinking Putin's terrible, but but what would be next? Yeah. what would be it's not like navalny is not going to take over right you know the liberal the liberal russians are not going to be oh putin will go and those are no 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 it's going to be real nutters yeah. so so that's really interesting because that i think a lot of people haven't haven't thought about that that you don't getting getting a coup against putin as you say is not is not the release and the you know deliverance to the the liberal democracy uh, after all, the, the coup against Gorbachev back in '91 was a hardliners' right. coup for sure. And what in this process of the transfer of power, what happens to nuclear weapons? Like, there's yeah. five thousand of them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure people have thought about this a lot. You know, in the American government, the British government, all the rest mm. of it. But I mean, that is an, a monumental challenge of how to to deal with that. And I think that maybe leads us to a little bit of the why some European leaders are a bit like, well, we'll give Ukraine some weapons, but not too many, because yes. you know, we don't want to, this is sort of Macron's, we don't want to humiliate Putin. But the thing is, I don't. I think the European leaders are kind of stuck, aren't they, in a double yeah. bind? Because if you don't defeat Russia in the field, that's a green light to carry on. And, you know, appeasement doesn't work with people like no. Putin. I mean, we've appeased him, Georgia, Syria, you know, Crimea, Donbass in 2014, all the rest. Of it. And look where we are now. Yep. Deterrence gets more expensive the longer you leave it. We're now deterring him. We need to defeat him in the field. But we're also terrified of what comes after. But I don't know what the, you know, what do you do? Which way do you go? It's, it's, a, it's a, either way is a, it's going to turn out, to, you know, is, is an uncertain outcome. Yeah. And there, there are no easy choices. And one of the things that it's very understandable from a Ukrainian perspective, you're hearing people say, which is basically that you know Russia as a as a land empire, as a sort of mm. imperial power, needs to be sort of brought to a close. Now, like I say, I, I repeat that if, if if I were Ukrainian, I would probably think that. But it's it's quite hard to think about that without there being some really uh, massive kind of interstate conflict. You know, it, it, it they, mean, they wouldn't the go quietly. Yugoslavia didn't go very well, did it? No. No. And then, so then what happens in the east of Russia, right? In Siberia. So that becomes, I don't know, the United Federated States of Siberia or something. Yeah. But so then what you're doing is creating a sparsely populated, weak state 
with loads of resources. You know, Russia is the world's number one natural resource exporter. Yeah. Yeah. Just to the south of that, of course, is China, which is quite has a dearth of natural resources, but is very populous. Yes. So bre- the breaking up of Russia seems to then give the lodestar of the world's resources to China. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not a great a option. The whole thing's yeah. a nightmare. Yeah. So you end up then actually with with what uh, initially seems completely unsatisfactory, but maybe the best or the least bad option, which is the continuation of Vladimir Putin as president. Yes, but coupled with, you know, the return of Ukrainian sovereignty to that. Yes. So there needs to be a How do you marry those two things? Yeah. That's hard to marry those two things. Yeah. I mean, threading that needle. And again, when I look around at the leadership we have in, you know, in terms of world leaders or whatever, mm. leaders of countries, I don't really see any big giants who are able to thread that those needles. They're quite difficult geopolitical problems to solve. Yeah. I don't really see any people capable of doing that. No. And 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 arguably there are a lot of people who are. I mean, China is probably in, invested in Western countries continuing to feel unstable, and certainly, mm. you know, China can benefit from from Russian mm. energy. And the US, you know, I think it's fair. Biden's done a pretty good job here, but it's he's got a lot of other fish to fry, not least the the sort of domestic political situation, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is which is pretty um pretty complicated. And then what what do, what lessons does China draw from the war? in terms of its views on sort of Taiwan and all that, that's a whole other, I mean, that's going to be another podcast episode, but there's a, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of other stuff there that the, the Ukraine war has opened up a Pandora's box. We are seeing the world order change in front of us, yes. right? We, I think yeah. whether we like it or not, we are seeing the collapse of Russian power. Like you've seen Azerbaijan having a go at Armenia, a Russian mm. ally, the Balkans has become less stable because the Serbian allies are suddenly, you know, the enemies of the Serbians are saying, all right, okay, Russia. You know, Russia is no longer the sponsor that it was. Yeah. We're seeing Wagner replaced with inexperienced people in Libya, Mali. Yeah. So they went in there in Mali, you know, when there was a French vacuum and, and mm. now there's going to be a Russian vacuum, you know. So they were seeing all this destabilization created by the collapse of Russian power. Mm. Um and that's you know the European periphery is so unstable at the moment, and then that that instability on Europe's periphery uh, feeds both directly and indirectly the kind of far right in European politics because it it allows people to present this idea that Europe is is surrounded by threatening un-European mm. forces, mm. and mm. and we're looking at you know Sweden may have just elected a a government which has far right elements, mm. and uh, Italy looks very likely to do that mm. yeah it's it's interesting isn't it the european far right like they seem to sort of wax and wane don't they yeah it's interesting maybe it's the way the electoral systems are all designed in all these different countries but it, we seem to sort of go from oh no you know we're about to everyone the far right about to take over and then like no 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 that was just a busted flush and our liberal democracy's back and yeah. I, I can't it's not clear to me how to interpret the actual yeah. results of far right? I mean, what do you think? Well, I think you what you don't see. Lots of people say, "Oh, there's a trend." You know, for a while, everyone was saying populism mm. is the trend, yeah, and we're yeah, headed yeah. in this direction. Yeah. And then, you know, Macron gets re-elected in Germany. The Greens and the left do yeah, really well, yeah. and so you and it's a mixed picture. But then, equally, Italy, you know, briefly had a really competent 
centrist government and that yeah. collapsed and and the headbangers are, are looking looking pretty strong <laughs> uh, technical term there so yeah it, it's a tricky yeah, but one the tories are probably going to lose that i mean i know the yes. tories are not far right but they certainly well, drifted to the right yeah in there the are UK. elements that probably are within well them. but they have though the whole party's been dragged to the right yes. right you know they kicked yes. out the kind of centrist tories and all the rest yes. of it and they've done that they would argue to soak up the far right right there's no yeah. far right party with any electoral success in the uk i mean that's their argument anyway yeah They're, the tories are likely to lose the next election in the uk right yeah. so then yeah. you know will everyone be writing the obituaries of the far right when that you know this is what i mean about it. it's really hard to kind of draw a line through what's happening in europe Going back to Ukraine, I suppose a final question about sustaining their advance. There's, as you as you observed, you know, some countries are still showing a bit of reluctance to keep supplying them with weapons. But it seems to me there's also a practical question as whether or not uh, Western countries have enough of these weapons to supply, because these are not the the sort of the simple artillery of which there are thousands of guns sitting around. You know, these are kind of advanced rocket systems and and of course ukrainians are looking for tanks and other uh sort of mobile yeah. Yeah. mobile armor so what what do you think is the picture there are we going to run out of stuff to give them it's quite interesting actually so the kit initially came from stocks yeah so i can speak to the uk you know which i know about um a lot of that stuff just came straight out of stocks so denuding the military capability of those those particular things, yeah. right? And then what happens is defense then reorders it from industry, but then mm. there's a lag time to get mm. that into. So definitely, definitely that's happening. I mean, obviously something like the US has obviously got huge reserves of kit, but a lot of European armies just kind of only have enough for a very short war and then they hope to, you know, key up industry to provide, you know, the back... But um, yeah, I think that's definitely a problem. And I think the other thing is, you know, if you're Poland, and, and, you know, the Baltic states and Poland have been the, you know, they've given the most generously alongside yeah. the US and to a slightly lesser degree the UK, but the UK is definitely in that sort of top tier. Yeah. Th- those countries are actually balancing, well, we need to give Ukraine stuff, but actually we're on Russia's border, so we need right. to keep some of that ourselves. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely think that's a factor. Mike, it's been great catching up. Um just my final question for you what should we be looking out for in the next few days sort of on the in ukraine's operations to have a feel for sort of how it's going what would be a good or a bad sign well i think a bad point of view is that they don't consolidate that territory yeah um and the russians managed to take us out but I, th- I just i think that's pretty unlikely um the best case scenario is that they've got a strategic reserve and they put another thrust in in another direction in another bit of the country. Um, so leave those fronts in the top. They've done a lot of damage up there. That's yeah. very embarrassing for the Russians. Several Donetsk and Donbass is kind of not so strategically important. Yeah, I, 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 you know, try and chop up the Kherson salient into two or try and get down to the Black Sea coast. That will be, if they can cut that Black Sea bit and they can get down to the Black Sea coast, that that is potentially war ending. Well, on that point, let's end this discussion. Mike Martin, thanks very much for talking to me today. Cheers, Arthur.
We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.